We're in Genesis 4. Genesis 4, 1 to 16, as we continue our series in studying the book of Genesis. And things change quite dramatically now. We've had the foundation of the earth, the creation mandate, God's purpose and plan for man and woman. We've seen sin enter into the world and the curses laid on man and woman and on the ground and on the serpent. And now we see the spiraling effect of sin in the world, in our relationships. Yet God, a sovereign God, working to fulfill his purpose. So let's read and then I'll pray and then we'll unpack this. Genesis 4, 1 to 16. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying out to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to, mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you walk, work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive with a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Then the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who find him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we come and tremble before your word, as we ought. We are your creation. And we need to be humbled by it, Lord. And Father, I pray that you'd have mercy on us and teach us, correct us if necessary, remind us of the gift of faith in the gospel, remind us of your work and take our eyes off the pride of life, the work of our hands, our good deeds that we think counts for something. But Lord, only... Christ's death and resurrection counts for anything in our salvation. 
Lord, as we look at the depravity of man and your holiness, will sinners be humbled, Christ exalted, and holy living proclaimed. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Everything has changed in Genesis 4. Man was in the garden temple with God. It said he walked with God. And it was his job to work it and keep it, to protect it and to extend the dwelling place of God among men. Normal was the enjoyment of God and the enjoyment of work. God created man and woman with five senses in that they would enjoy all of creation that would lead them to ultimate enjoyment in God. Yet now man is east of Eden, outside of the presence of God. Their five senses lure them into idolatry. Their parenting is now painful in childbirth and taxing in raising children. The relationship between man and woman is at odds. Everything has changed. Everything has changed. What we need to do when we come to Genesis 4 is refocus on those main themes we looked at in our overview of Genesis. If we don't have those main themes in the right place, there's plenty of places in Genesis that will come unstuck and may impute meaning into the story. One of my great examples that I use and have used so often is Job 38. Uh, Job 38. I've done it again. I'm in the wrong book. Genesis 38. Genesis 38 is a horrific story of Ju uh, Judah and his daughter-in-law, and it has no condemnation over it. We don't ever see God say this was bad. It's just this story. It's horrific. And then we're left and we go to the story of Joseph. But what we see in Genesis is that one story corrects the other story. Joseph in the very next story says no to Potiphar's wife in engaging in sexual relations with her. And it condemns Judah just before. We need to be careful as we read Genesis because it's not always as clear as what is written as to the meaning of it. We have to look what came before it and just after it. Well, what came before this is the fall, but even just after that is the curses that God put on the ground, on woman, on the serpent, and on man. And we know that this is going to describe how these curses play out. Dysfunction, really. Dysfunction in the family unit. We see very clearly that the whole book of Genesis is, Genesis is a triune God-focused book. It is gospel-centered. We stand longing and waiting for the offspring of the woman. Every genealogy that is read, every barren woman that is healed is an expectation of waiting. Is this the offspring that will crush the serpent's head and bring ultimate victory to the woman's offsprings? We wait with expectation in Genesis. As we look at these curses that push us towards God, we called them last week uncomfortable graces, a quote from Augustine. He reminds us, Augustine, that uncomfortable graces are there in order to draw us to God. So the dysfunction in society, the curse upon the ground that man has to work by the sweat of their brow, the relationship between man and woman being at odds is a reminder that nothing is going to be successful unless God is in it, unless God is part of our life. It's as if God has put a poison in all human relationships in which he is the only antidote. And Augustine says, 
Your rod was thrusting at my heart, giving me no peace until the eyes of my soul could discern you without mistake. We look now to Genesis 4 and we'll continue right up till Genesis 11, seeing the depravity of man. And in the depravity of man, we see a much needed hero. And there is none. Abel is not the hero. Noah is not the hero. They are all condemned in some form. We wait longingly for the hero and there's only one hero and his name is God. He was introduced in verse one. And we know that he describes himself as an us, Father, Son and Holy Spirit. So as we look to this story and we look at the dysfunction of family that is there because because of sin in the heart and the curses upon this world, we need to ask the right question. What is God doing? What is God doing to preserve his purpose that he began this creation with? What is God doing in order to bring about Revelation 22? What is God doing in order to bring about a people for himself? That is what we want to look for. Because God's purpose has not changed. Genesis 1 and 2, his purpose to have a people who dwelt with him, who would see him face to face, is still the very purpose of God throughout the whole of Scripture. And he will make it happen. He promises to make it happen. So even in the midst, as we look at the offering of Abel and the murder of Cain, or the, murder, the, murdering, of, the murdering of Abel, these aren't the main points of this story. The main point of the story is God and what God's doing. So let's unpack it as we do verse by verse or section by section. We're going to focus more heavily on the start than on the end as there's 16 verses here and we don't want to take too long. Now Adam knew his wife and she conceived and bore Cain saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep and Cain a worker of the ground. Right here we have a setting up of the story. It's giving us key information we need in order to understand exactly what is happening and what is going to take place. We notice here that they have two sons, the first being Cain. He is the firstborn. We know in Genesis, if you read the whole book of Genesis, and as we looked at the overview, firstborns are significant. A firstborn son would inherit all of his father's possessions. So Cain is in a pretty privileged position. Except when you know the story of Genesis, firstborns don't go all that well in God's eyes. If we look at Isaac over Ishmael or Jacob over Esau, God chooses not by status, earthly status, but by his own choosing. This is an important part of this story. Romans 9, 11, and 12, I'm going to give it to us early because it's going to help us throughout the rest of the passage, says, though they're speaking of Jacob and Esau, Paul is speaking of Jacob and Esau, says, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. A very important passage in order to help us understand what is going on in Genesis 4 and the rest of Genesis, that God had a purpose and a plan and he would choose not according to their works, 
or their status or their merit, but because of himself, just himself. We looked a few weeks ago at this great doctrine of God is for his glory. And we looked at those passages in Isaiah 48 that says God saved Israel for his name's sake. God chooses because of who he is and not because of who we are. And in this passage, he'll choose the younger and not the older. And in Isaac, he chooses the younger and not the older. And same with Jacob and Esau. God's sovereign election, sovereign choosing in mankind is his sole responsibility. There's another interesting setting up part of this story, which states their vocation. Now, Abel was a keeper of the sheep and Cain a worker of the ground. We shouldn't miss this because if we miss this, we start to focus heavily on the sacrifices where they're deliberately stating exactly what the vocation of each brother was because what follows is them presenting a sacrifice or an offering to God. Let's read verse 3 and 4. Uh, three to five. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. Well, it says here that time has passed. We don't know how much time has passed, but the phrase could mean quite a number of years, maybe centuries. They lived quite a long time in those days. We know that the earth is populated because the very next verse after this passage in verse 17 is that Cain takes a wife for himself. So there's more population than what we, can, what we first, uh, what first appears. So in the course of time, some time has passed these Boys are now adults, presumably. They're working in the field, working in the ground. And it's very clear that this is about worship. How do we worship God? What is good and honourable worship to God? What pleases God? A question that many churches will spend hours debating as to whether they should have an organ or a drum kit in their worship styles. That maybe that's what Cain and Abel were arguing over, whether the offering is better if it's from animals or the field. But we've been purposely stated by the narrator that they had a vocation. And Abel gives from his vocation and Cain gives from his. Cain gives from the ground and Abel gives from the fat portions of his animals. They're giving out of what they have, which leaves us with a bit of a dilemma. The challenging part that God would regard Abel and his offering, but not Cain and his. Why? They both gave out of what they had. Why would God choose one over the other? Was Cain's offering, of course, it's meat. Meat's better than vegetables, isn't it? We would say, I would say. And many people would look at this and start to unpack that he says it says fat portions. So maybe that's better than other offerings. But we need to take a look at the rest of Scripture to understand whether there is anything better about a meat offering than a vegetable offering. Firstly, if we look at the early chapters of Leviticus, we see the sacrificial system laid down to the Israelite people. And very clearly, God says, bring to me for a sin offering, a bull, and sacrifice the bull. 
But then he goes on to say, if you do not have a bull, give me two turtle doves. And if you don't have that, two pigeons. And if you don't have that, a grain offering. It seems that God is less concerned about what the offering is and why you're bringing it to him. Or if we look at Isaiah 1.11, we see Israel has moved off into all sorts of idolatry and wondering and still processing, still living in their their, uh, sacrificial system, but it has no meaning. And God says to them through Isaiah, uh, what to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord. I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. Straight away, God is condemning the fat portions and condemning the blood of the lambs and the goats. So we're left still with the question, what makes Abel's offering better? Well, verse 4 and 5 introduces to us the unapologetic, explicit reality of the Bible that God chooses. God chooses, and it's his choice to accept and reject based not on work, but on himself, on his holiness, on his righteous decrees, on his plan and purpose for this creation of his. Here he chooses Abel over Cain, Noah and his family later over the rest of mankind. Abraham, for some reason, he picks a man who has no children, no descendant, and a wife who is barren and of old age. Isaac over Ishmael, Jacob over Esau, and Israel over the other nations, although they were small and despised, as it says in Deuteronomy. Why? Because of him who calls. Reminds us of Corinthians. Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were strong. It's very clear, and this is our first introduction to it, that the Bible is unapologetic and explicit about God's sovereign choosing in order to bring about his purpose. And his purpose is to have a redeemed people for himself whom he will dwell with and see face to face for all eternity. And if this isn't the option, we're left with one other. It's based on our works. It's based on what we do for God or what we bring to God. But if it's based on what we do for God and what we bring to God, then that is a scary place to be. A scary place to be because when is enough enough? When have I done enough to please a holy and good God? And we've looked at that word holy so many times here that in Isaiah 6, it says, holy, 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 a a phrase that the angels are repeating in song, uh, in, in repetition, stating that he is holier than we can ever imagine. And holy means to be separate, cut off, unlike anything else. God is uncreated. He stands far above. In the Psalms, back in January, we saw that phrase that David uses, most high, a reminder for us that God is above all else. How do you please that God? How do you please someone who is infinitely holy and infinitely good with your works? Of course, the Pharisees made this their position. 
We think of the story that Jesus told us, where the Pharisee and the tax collector come up to the temple to pray, and the Pharisee stands there with his arms up in all his beautiful robes, and he says, Father, I thank you that I'm not like other men. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of my wage. Thank you that I'm not like this tax collector. And the tax collector, not even looking up to the heavens, but bowing down with his eyes on the ground, beats his chest and says, Father, oh Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus said to the crowd, who was justified this day? And of course, it was the tax collector, which the crowd would not want to admit. The Pharisees thought it was about works. They would read probably Cain and Abel and know the story and say, well, Abel brought a better sacrifice. If we go to Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, it reminds us, for grace you have been saved through faith. For for by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. And this comes straight after a bleak picture of human society which says you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you all once walked. And then he says, but God who is rich in mercy, God who, enriches, God who is rich in mercy. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not as a result of works so that no one may boast. Abel couldn't boast in his fat offering. He did nothing. He brought what he had. He brought out of his vocation. Yet God chose to regard him. The choosing of God is him giving us faith, without which we cannot see past the veil of sin that has covered our eyes. God gives us faith in order to remove the veil so that we can see and understand and repent of all that is in our heart, all that the fall has caused in us, that original sin that is dwelling within us, the impossibility of being able to honor God with our life and actions. So God grants us the gift of faith that we may see. And when we see, we come to the place of the Proverbs of fearing God. In other words, we put God in the right place he belongs, on the throne. We put God as the most high. We put God as the almighty. We de-elevate ourselves, as John the Baptist says, we decrease and he increases in our mind. We cannot see this without faith. We can meditate on it all day long, but we are thrown upon the mercy of God and saying, have mercy on me, a sinner. Make my eyes see. And then in response, we would give our first fruits. And this is the only difference between the two sacrifices. But it's a response of faith. It's not how he is regarded. Abel, it says, gave the first of his flock. Why did he give the first of his flock? Because when he saw God, he saw God in all his holiness. When Cain saw God, he saw God as an opposition. He saw God as Adam and Eve then saw God after they took of the fruit. They wanted to define, uh, define good and evil by their own autonomous, self-obsessed way as Satan decided to allow that, as Satan gave that deception to Eve. You can be like God. But Abel, 
from faith brings his first fruit. Hebrews 11.4 says, By Abel offered to God sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gift, gift, gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. What does Abel speak? Well, only two verses later in Hebrews 6, it tells us, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists. It is impossible to plead. And because of his faith, he brought his first fruits. If he was a, she- if he was a farmer like Cain, he could have brought vegetables and fruit as well as an offering. Yet I can imagine it would have been his first fruits that he brought because his faith would have revealed the worthiness of God and the worthiness of a first fruit worship. Why was Israel condemned in, in Isaiah 1? Because they had lost sight of who God was. God was a competitor. God was someone who was withholding from them. Just like Eve saw that God was withholding from her the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil, God felt like that to Israel. And instead of seeing God holy and lifted up on his throne, almighty, gracious, long-suffering, steadfast, they saw him as someone who was withholding. We want to be like the rest of the nations. They have many gods. We want to have whatever we want, but we still want to have our sacrificial system so that we are unique in some way. God rejected their offerings because they didn't come by faith. He rejected Cain's offering because it didn't come in faith. It came in competition with his brother. So Cain was angry and his face fell. And the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? And why has your face fallen? If you will do well, you will be accepted. And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. God's disregard for Cain is a gift of grace. We live in the West, and we live in Australia particularly. We love to flatter each other. We love to tell each other we're good when we're not. We love to tell people that they're right when they're actually wrong. If you think about a Bible study, a genuine Christian Bible study, you get in a group, you've got someone that's sort of leading it, and then someone will give an opinion that's just wayward, left-wing, you have no idea where it's come from, and the leader will go, yeah, that's good. And it's just like, no, it wasn't. That was wrong. But we love to flatter each other. But God's grace to Cain is to disregard his action, disregard that he hasn't come in faith, disregard that disregard his offering because it didn't come from the right place in order that Cain might find faith. Isn't that what God ultimately wants? It says later in Scripture that he would love for all people to repent. So he disregards it. He condemns him. He puts curses upon him, uncomfortable graces upon him that will linger with him for the rest of his life so that he may know that he needs God in his life. Uncomfortable grace, which helps us know we need God, is a good thing in our life. 
And what we're seeing set up by God here is this message that will say that there is a problem in us that we can't fix. Now, if we look at this next part of the passage, which is often used in a way to cause people to work harder and be more disciplined, it says, God said to him, if you do well, you'll be accepted. If you do well, you'll be accepted. But it's clarified here when it says, and if you, do, uh, if you do, do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you. You must rule over it. God gives an impossible response to Cain, an impossible command to achieve. He wants him to realize that it is absolutely impossible to do well anymore. And the reason we see this is because it says sin is crouching at your door. He's using language of a lion crouching, ready to devour the prey. Its desire is against you. Its desire is over you. You must rule it. What he's saying is that sin is not just breaking of the law. Sin is an aggressive force that will ambush Cain. Sin is larger than Cain can ever Imagine it takes over our whole life. As Romans 7 says, Paul crying out says, the very things I do not want to do, I do. And the very things I don't want to do, I've got confused, which is a very confusing passage. The, The very things I do want to do, the very things I don't want to do, I hate. He carries on about this battle that is within him. And God is saying that sin is lethal. It's going to devour us. It's going to consume Cain. He uses this later passage to clarify what he meant by if you do well, you'll be accepted or to put him in a place where it is impossible for him to do well. But we take this passage in our discipleship and we'll sit there and say, do better. Live a better life. Sin is sitting there. It's crouching at your door. Its desire is contrary to you. You need to rule it. You need to master it. But is that what God is really saying? Is that how God wanted this passage to be used? Well, the very next part in verse 8 reveals what happened. Sin's crouching at Cain's door. Its desire is to devour him. So Cain in verse 8 goes and speaks to his brother. And when he went to the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. This is the state of all humanity. The answer is in the result of what happens to Cain or what, what happens to Abel, what Cain does. God wasn't saying, Cain, you have the power to rule over sin. You have the power in yourself to conquer sin. That's not the message. The very next line of this passage reveals to us that he has no power. Cain is ultimately dependent on the mercy of God and has no power whatsoever. He is there lying before God saying, I, am a, I, I need mercy. If I have this uncontrollable force, this lion-like force that's going to devour me, I need mercy is the response. See, what we do is we'll read this passage and we'll impute ourselves into it. We think we're able. We're able. We come off our first fruits. We're giving to God the, the worship that's pleasing to him. We're not able. We're Cain. We come to God with our seconds. We come to God defining good and evil for ourselves. 
Abel points to Christ. Abel is given faith by God in order to point us to Christ, who is a better sacrifice for us. We are like Cain and like the tax collector who should beat our chest and say, have mercy on me, O God, a sinner. Have mercy on me. We were not meant to rule over sin. We can't. We need Jesus to rule over it. We need Jesus to conquer sin for us on our behalf. And in Jesus, as that song says, yet not I but through Christ in me, in Jesus we conquer our sin. In Jesus we have claimed victory over the devouring lion of sin. In Jesus we have been shown mercy. In verse 9, the Lord comes to Cain in the same way he came to Adam when Adam was hiding in the garden. And he asks questions. He shows him grace. Where are you? Where, where is your brother? Where is Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying out from the ground. He's a murderer. He's a liar. And the unrelenting sin is consuming Cain's entire life. Life and death should be in the hands of God. Nobody has the right to take a life. Only God does for God himself formed it. Yet Cain decides that it was in his best interest to take his brother's life. What we see that follows here is God's graciousness to Cain in that he will live a life of wandering upon the land. He doubles the curses of Adam upon his son, verse 11. And now you are cursed from the ground, which, you, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Adam was... The ground was cursed for Adam, and by the sweat of his brow, he will produce from it. Cain will not even see its strength. The consequence upon Cain, the uncomfortable grace that will plague Cain all his life, is that he will struggle to see any fruit from the ground at all. And we know in the very next story, Cain goes on to build a city, not a farm. So maybe Cain, was, it was actually impossible for him to produce vegetation from the ground of course Cain says in lamenting before God my punishment is greater than I am I can bear behold you have driven me today away from the ground and from your face I shall be hidden I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on earth and whoever finds me will kill me Cain's lament is not one of repentance and it's one of self-correction uh, self-protection there's godly grief in scripture and there's worldly grief Godly grief leads to a place where we see the holiness of God, our depravity, and we fall on our face like the tax collector and say, have mercy on me. I have nothing to offer. I am a sinner. Worldly grief is about what we're going to lose, what we're going to suffer, what we're going to struggle missing out on. Cain's going to have a rough life, so he comes in worldly grief saying, oh, my life's going to be terrible. Cain is worried about this life rather than his place before God. Yet God gives him grace and puts a mark on him. I'm not going to speculate about what the mark was. 
But in verse 15, it says, The Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance will be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest anyone who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. What we see here is symbolism that sin drives us from the presence of God. He went further east, further away from the garden where God's presence dwelt. His blasphemous life could not live in the presence of God. The pride of life pushes him from God and he will live forever separate from God. This is the state of mankind. The state of mankind is that we have a pride of life. Like our first parents, Adam and Eve, we are defining good and evil autonomously away from God. And we think that good and evil is best in best serving us and our interests. Yet God's definition of good and evil in the garden was that we live with him and listen to his word. Cain is now further from God than he was before, just like our own hearts were before Christ. Yeah, but there's one more thing. Abel's blood was spilt, which reminds us of Christ's blood. Hebrews tells us in Hebrews 12, 24, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to sprinkle the blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Abel was murdered by his brother, and so Jesus was murdered by his own people. His own people did not know him. Yet Abel's death was still deserved because he was the son of Adam and Eve. Original sin ran in his heart. So his blood was not enough to atone for, atone for his own sin or ours, yet Christ's blood was. Abel is saved through faith in Jesus Christ, the promise of the offspring that would die and, and crush Satan's uh, head or bruise Satan's head. When we think of the better blood, the blood that speaks a better word than Abel's, a blood that is innocent. Christ, no deceit was found in his mouth, holy, righteous, spotless, yet he died in the place of sinners. His blood was innocent. It's not through, and it's through our faith in his work that we are justified. Faith alone in Christ alone. The Bible doesn't take a backward step in introducing our salvation theme. The Bible is very clear from the beginning that we are not going to be saved by our works, yet we want it to be our works because we think that's something we control. But that's just the pride of life. The pride of life is that we think we can do enough to earn God's favour, but we can't. So the point right from the beginning is that God draws our attention away from what human what fallen humans think is, is, is important, namely how our work makes us impressive, to what God thinks is important, namely how our works reveals who we trust in. How our work reveals who we trust in. The first fruit or the first of his flock, of Abel's flock, reveals that he trusted in God. It did not save him. It had no power to save him. It revealed who he trusted in. Cain, in his offering, revealed that he did not trust God but was in competition with him. All scripture teaches us that the righteous shall live by faith. We'll see this in Genesis 15. We'll see this again as we parallel that with Romans 4 because without faith it is impossible to please God. Abel was commended as righteous by God because he presented his offering in faith. 
as Hebrews 11 told us. Cain's offering was an act of evil because without humble trust in God, even our offerings or any work we do is evil before God. No matter if they appear to everyone else as obedience or impressive, God sees what comes from the heart. We're very clear here that it is about God and his purpose, not about us and our works. We're saved through faith in Christ alone. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we thank you that we have been shown mercy from you who are rich in mercy because of your great love made us alive in Christ. We died with him. We've been resurrected with him. You've opened our eyes to see and you've given us faith that we may repent. The eyes of our heart may see, Lord, the depravity that is in us and the holiness that you are and how far removed we are from you. We are like our brother Cain, yet we've been made like Abel because of the grace that you've shown us in Christ Jesus, our Lord. We give you great praise and pray that it would be revealed through how we live and how we worship. Would our acts of worship reveal who we trust in? You, the holy, mighty God and Saviour and King. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.